Welcome to Come Follow Me with Brie, episode 94, She Went and Did. Hi, everyone. I am so glad you're here. This week got a little tricky for me because there is so much content and so many people and names and all of those things. And so it really took me a while to kind of really sort it all out. And so there is so much that I'm not going to cover, but I couldn't help but be drawn toward one of the first stories in this week's reading. But first, I want to set it up so that you guys understand the context of what's happening and who we're even talking about and what people we're talking about. So let's dive right in. So last week, we read in our assignment about the rise and fall of King David and then the rise and fall of King Solomon. And as we were reading about the end of King Solomon's reign, the Lord often refers to King David, who was Solomon's father, as the righteous example that he should Solomon should be following. And it's interesting to know that there is, if you hadn't noticed yet, a lot of Joseph Smith translation in those verses as it's referring to David as the righteous king whose example the Lord tells Solomon he should be following. So as you read about that, we know it's, it's kind of cool actually to see how the Lord refers to David as as righteous and somebody to follow because we know that David made some pretty big mistakes. So I'll tell you what I mean by that. My favorite Joseph Smith translation in those verses, as he's talking about wanting Solomon to be like his father David, the original Bible translation says after he lists other gods that Solomon has been worshiping, he says, they have forsaken me and have not walked in my ways. So they meaning Solomon and his people and his wives and have not walked in my ways to do that, which is right in mine eyes and to keep my statutes and my judgment as did David, his father. Okay. But what the Joseph Smith translation says is so much clearer for one and is yet another reminder that we can always be forgiven. It says, and his heart is become as David, his father, and he repenteth not as did David, his father, that I may forgive him. Don't you just love that? That changes the meaning entirely. The Lord says that I may forgive him. It kind of brings out the pleading tone that the Lord must have for us as he pleads with us to repent that he may forgive us. He's asking us. Please do what you need to do that I may forgive you. So Solomon appoints a man named Jeroboam to be a ruler in the kingdom. It says in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 28, And the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing the young man that he was industrious, he made him a ruler over all the charge of the house of Joseph. So after that, a prophet named Ahijah came to Jeroboam and told him through this funny incident where, well, it seems funny. Maybe it wasn't funny at the time, but he he strips the coat off of Jeroboam and tears it into 12 pieces and then gives him 10 of the pieces. And so in doing that, he's telling him that he's going to become king over 10 of the tribes, but that he would leave the Lord would leave two tribes for King David's line because as we read before, although David certainly wasn't perfect, he did repent. So the Lord forgave him and counted him as righteous. So he was, the Lord was going to leave two tribes for the line of David to rule over. 
Jeroboam is also told that King Solomon will live out the rest of his life as king and that this transition wouldn't happen until King Solomon's son takes over the throne. So I guess Solomon found out about this prophecy and he wanted to kill Jeroboam because of that. So Jeroboam fled to Egypt until the time of Solomon's death. So after Solomon dies, his son named Rehoboam is to take over the kingdom. And Jeroboam, so Jeroboam, I, th I think it's easy to get those two names confused. So Rehoboam is Solomon's son who's taking over the kingdom. And Jeroboam is the one that was prophesied to lead the 10 tribes. So Jeroboam doesn't immediately try to take over. He goes with the people to talk to Rehoboam about taxing the people. And essentially what the people are saying to him is, your father taxed us so much and made our lives so hard. So please tax us less and we will serve you and be, be loyal to you. So he tells the people and Jeroboam to go for three days and then come back. And during that three days, he consults with the elders of Solomon and asks them what they think. And they agree with the people. But then he gets into a little bit of trouble and he goes to his buddies that he grew up with and he asks them what they think. And they basically think that he should tax them more so he can be more wealthy and build more houses and I don't know, whatever he wants to do with his money. So foolishly, he decides to be greedy and he goes back to the people and it says that he answered them roughly and told them that he was going to make things even harder for them than they were under his father. And it's at this point that Jeroboam leads in rebellion the 10 tribes to the north to be their leader. So the prophecy came true. Jeroboam was the king of the 10 tribes to the north. The two tribes that stayed behind to continue under the reign of Rehoboam were Judah, so the Jews, and the tribe of Benjamin. In this first book of Kings that we are studying, it says that Rehoboam considered going up against Jeroboam in battle, but a holy man advised him not to, and they followed that counsel. And so it kind of, in this book, it kind of appears as though they didn't fight, but then in Second Chronicles, which talks about the same timeline as we're talking about right now, it says that Jeroboam and Rehoboam were at war continually. So obviously they had conflict. Okay, so... I'm trying to set this up so that you guys can understand what's happening leading up to the story that we're going to talk about today. So we've got two kingdoms now, the kingdom to the north, the northern kingdom, which consists of the 10 tribes that Jeroboam led, and then Rehoboam, who stayed behind in Jerusalem, led the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. That kingdom was also referred to as the kingdom of Judah, and the northern kingdom is referred to as Israel. Okay, so Jeroboam does not remain a righteous man. Surprise, surprise. We see that happen all the time in the scriptures. He gets nervous because there is only one temple and it's in Jerusalem, which is not in his kingdom. And he's worried that people are going to travel down there to go to the temple and then they're going to want to stay and they're going to leave him and then they'll possibly want to kill him and rejoin with Rehoboam. So he decides to build two temples on his land. But He's not authorized by the Lord to build temples, and he also puts golden calves in them. But he wasn't necessarily trying to start a new religion. It was, it was kind of the same religion, but then with other things mixed in and with pagan idols. He was offering sacrifices, and he was trying to mimic the priests of Levi that were in charge of operating the real temple in Jerusalem, except that they weren't Levites like the temple priests are supposed to be. And he also initiated a feast that was trying to be like the Feast of Tabernacles. Basically, he's just trying to recreate the same thing that they had in Jerusalem so nobody wants to leave him. And that makes the Lord very unhappy. 
The following chapters tell us of the continuing story of Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and suffice it to say, they were wicked. And as we know, wicked kings create a wicked people. Okay, so now I want to talk about a prophet that we get introduced to in chapter 17 from the kingdom of Israel, so the northern kingdom. It's a prophet whose name you will recognize, Elijah, and his story is triggered by the wickedness of a king named Ahab. So it's been 57 years at this point, past the death of Solomon. Rehoboam is no longer king, and there have been five kings since Rehoboam. And we are still in a pretty uh, deep state of wickedness in the northern kingdom, even more wicked than the southern kingdom. So Ahab marries a woman named Jezebel, and Jezebel is a wicked, wicked woman. In fact, if you look in the Bible dictionary, it says this of her. Jezebel's marriage to Ahab, more than any other single event, caused the downfall of the northern kingdom of Israel. Jezebel introduced into Israel the worst forms of idol worship from her land in place of the worship of Jehovah. So we have a wicked, wicked Jezebel, and we have Ahab, who wasn't righteous in the first place, and now he's married to Jezebel. And because of this wickedness, the Lord then sends Elijah, the prophet, in chapter 17. And he prophesies to Ahab that there will be a famine. It says, there shall not be dew nor rain these years. And at this point, Elijah needs to hide from Ahab because Ahab's super mad at him. And the Lord commands him to go hide at the edge of a brook. And he's able to drink the water from the brook. And the Lord commands ravens to bring him bread and meat in the morning and evening so that he doesn't die. Notice that being one of God's chosen servants doesn't always mean life is going to be great. I mean, that cannot have been fun. He was there a good long while because while he was there, the brook finally dried up from drought. So when the brook finally dries up, the Lord then tells Elijah what to do. He says, starting in chapter 17 of 1 Kings, verse 9, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belonged to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain me. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks. And he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. And she said, As the Lord God liveth, I have not a cake, but an handful of meal in a barrel, and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks, that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said unto her, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make for thee and for thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruse of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days, and the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. Okay, we're going to stop there. This woman was literally on the verge of death. She was gathering sticks. She knew a holy man was coming. Somehow the Lord had told her that. She was gathering sticks so that she could cook a meal for herself and her son 
a last meal so that they could then die. Sometimes I think I do this, I know. I disassociate from the people in the scriptures a little bit. They're they're a story instead of a real human being. But imagine that. Imagine you are on the brink of death and starvation. You know what that does to people's minds? It makes them crazy. It makes them do things they wouldn't normally do, irrational things. And so while in this state, here comes this man, this stranger, that she doesn't know, even though she knows someone's coming, she doesn't know him. And he's asking for water. And she immediately goes to get it. Now, that part I can kind of relate with. I think most of us, even in the midst of our hardest times, if we are specifically asked by someone to help in a time of crisis, most of us will still drop what we're doing to help them. But it's what she does next that I find so remarkable. He asks her for bread, and it's at that point that she explains her situation. I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel, and a little oil in a cruise, and behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son that we may eat it and die. She's saying, I I have nothing to give, nothing left. What does the Lord ask of us? What has he been asking of his people throughout the history of the world? Sacrifice. Did you know that the original meaning of the word sacrifice wasn't to give up something for some sort of greater cause? The original meaning of sacrifice was to make something or someone holy. Joseph Smith taught that a religion that does not require the sacrifice of all things never has the power sufficient to produce the faith necessary unto life and salvation. When we are asked to sacrifice, to give more than we feel like we have, the Lord multiplies that sacrifice and gives us back more than we ever gave. He gives us life and salvation. In the act of sacrifice, we become a holy people, worthy of salvation. Our sacrifice sanctifies us and makes us holy. Have you ever felt like this widow? Have you ever felt like you had nothing, nothing left to give? And yet, what does the Lord ask of you still? Does he say, it's okay, you can take a break? No. He knows that is not what's best for us. He tells us to endure to the end. He tells us to keep going. He tells us to keep trying, to keep ministering, to keep paying tithing, to keep obeying the law of chastity, to keep going to the temple, to keep fulfilling our callings, to keep trying to be the kind of parent that he would want you to be, the kind of friend, the kind of person. He tells us that we must lose ourselves in that sacrifice to him because he knows that he is going to multiply it far beyond what we can imagine. He knows that that plan of sacrifice, of losing ourselves for his sake, will give us everything that we will ever need. It's like Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 14, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water, 
springing up into everlasting life. He knows in our sacrifice that that is what we get in return. Something that will fill us so that we never thirst. Something that will give in us a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Matthew 10.39 says, He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. So what about Elijah's next request? He asked the widow to make a cake for him first, and then one for her and her son. Anytime I feel like my life is in a rut or I feel like I have nothing left to give, in those moments, I've been given a gift from the Holy Ghost to draw upon. And it's a gift that I I always feel like I haven't fully taken advantage of, but I have faith in this gift. I always get the same prompting whenever I feel overwhelmed. What I hear the Holy Ghost saying to me in those moments is, put him first and everything else will fall into place. Elisha tells the widow that if she does this, if if she makes his cake first, that her meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail. And then it says, she went and did. She had faith, faith enough to feed a stranger before her own dying son. I cannot imagine feeding a stranger as my son sits in front of me starving. That took faith. Think about the opportunity she could have missed had she decided to follow maybe some more logical thinking and think, no, my son comes first. Would she have had the opportunity to experience the miracle of watching her oil and flour never diminish if she hadn't done as the prophet had commanded her? What miracles do we miss out on by not doing as he commands? I'm just thinking about the things that I am not great at. I'll tell you one thing. I am not a great ministering sister. I'm, that's like, that's my focus right now. I want to try to be better at that. What miracles am I missing out on? What experiences, what growth am I missing out on? Because I fail to do as he asked to be a good ministering sister. What are some commands, some things that you have been asked to do that either you maybe don't agree with or you think is too hard or you think you have nothing left to give? What are you missing out on that he has to give you by following the Lord's command? Moroni said in Ether chapter 12, verse 18, And neither at any time hath any wrought miracles until after their faith. Wherefore, they first believed in the Son of God. This scripture has always confused me a little bit because there are lots of stories in the scriptures where people who don't have faith or aren't being righteous are shown miracles. But I never thought about the fact that all the miracles were preceded by someone with faith. Pharaoh wasn't righteous, nor did he have faith, but he got to witness miracles because Moses had faith. Laman and Lemuel witnessed miracles because Nephi had faith. Faith comes first. When we fail to obey the Lord's command and do what we've been asked to do, not only are we perhaps missing out on miracles, actually, when we're not doing it, we definitely are missing out on miracles and testimony building moments, but we're also perhaps depriving people around us 
from seeing miracles that happened because we had faith. How can we do all the Lord has asked? Sacrifice all we are, give our whole mind, might, heart, and soul to him? How can we love our neighbor, minister and feed his sheep, go to the temple, fulfill callings, when we, like the widow, feel like we have nothing left to give? Faith. Faith is the key to it all, because from faith comes the miracle of the Master. Mormon said it perfectly. Moroni chapter 7, verse starting in verse 33. And Christ hath said, If ye will have faith in me, ye shall have power to do whatsoever thing is expedient in me. And he hath said, Repent all ye ends of the earth and come unto me, and be baptized in my name and have faith in me that ye may be saved. And now, my beloved brethren, if this be the case, that these things are true which I have spoken unto you, and God will show unto you with power and great glory at the last day that they are true, and if they are true, has the day of miracles ceased? Or have angels ceased to appear unto the children of men? Or has he withheld the power of the Holy Ghost from them? Or will he, so long as time shall last, or the earth shall stand, or there shall be one man upon the face thereof to be saved? Behold, I say unto you, Nay, for it is by faith that miracles are wrought, and it is by faith that angels appear and minister unto men. Wherefore, if these things have ceased, woe be unto the children of men, for it is because of unbelief and all is vain. Do you really believe the Lord, that he will do more for your life? If you do as he asked and sacrifice for him, than if you just look out for your own interests? Do you really believe that he's going to give you more than you could possibly imagine? I can't tell you what those miracles will look like in your life, and you can't either. Only the Lord knows what miracles he has in store for you. And they for sure might be different than what you would choose right now. But I can tell you that he does have miracles prepared for you, as you are willing to go and do. Miracles that are far better and far wiser than anything you can imagine. After Elijah stayed with the widow for a while, relying on the Lord's miracle, living with food in the midst of a country with famine, they had what they needed because of their faith in the Lord. There was no famine in that house. But you know what happened anyway? The widow's son died. And the widow questioned Elijah, asking him if it was her fault for her previous sins. I wonder what her thoughts were. Might they have been, what was the point of all of this if he was just going to die anyway? Why save him in the first place and extend his misery? Or maybe she thought, why me? Or maybe she just simply thought, I, I don't understand. It must have felt in that moment like all was lost. And that this was some part of a cruel plan that made no sense. But her story was not over. Elijah took her son up to his bed and cried to the Lord to bring her son back. Elijah, he knew where to turn. Elijah's faith wrought miracles. Verse 22, And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. And the woman said unto Elijah, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord 
in thy mouth is truth. I'm sure that the widow already knew that he was a man of God. She had already seen miracles, but sometimes, especially when hard things happen, we need to have that reconfirmation of testimony. And it likely often won't happen like it just happened for her. She saw a miracle of her son coming back to life. But there are miracles that the Lord can work in our hearts. So when we're having a hard time, when we feel like we have nothing left to give, I hope we seek and expect miracles from God to reconfirm our faith, to refresh our testimony, and to renew our soul and give us energy and excitement back for the gospel of Jesus Christ. When she was despairing, her story was not over. Your story isn't over. It reminds me of the old saying, everything will be okay in the end. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. In our striving to live the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is true. If we first have faith in Jesus Christ, and like the widow, go and do, everything will be okay in the end. And if everything isn't okay right now, it is not the end. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah. And she and he and her house did eat many days. I hope that the Lord can speak of me someday in those terms. I hope he can say, that Brie, she went and did while she was on the earth. Elder Eyring said, you show your trust in him when you listen with the intent to learn and repent and then go do whatever he asks. If you trust God enough to listen for his message in every sermon, song, and prayer, you will find it. And if you then go and do what he would have you do, your power to trust him will grow. And in time, you will be overwhelmed with gratitude to find that he has come to trust you. Let's get to the next life, being able to say to ourselves that we went and did when it counted. We didn't require that we understand everything first. We went and did what the Lord commanded. We listened to our prophet and trusted that he was going to provide. Let's do that to such a degree that the same thing can be said about us as was said about Moroni. If all men or women had been and were and ever would be like unto Moroni, behold, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever. Yea, the devil would never have power over the hearts of the children of men. Let's be here on earth. I mean, really be here. Let's not just exist, but let's do what we came here to do, what your pre-mortal spirit was determined to do. Let's do what we have covenanted to do, refusing to surrender to any fears as we go through hard times, having faith that everything is going to turn out exactly as it was supposed to. We cannot allow ourselves to be distracted or derailed because we have things we were foreordained to do for and with our Savior. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.